This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Book of Romans.
Romans 5 is the payoff after the heavy weathering of the first four chapters of Romans. And there was some difficult slogging that wasn't there. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, we, we withered before the searing condemnation of all humanity under the wrath of a holy God. Jew and Gentile, religious and non-religious, we all stand guilty of worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And far from rescuing humanity, God's holy law only serves to expose the deep and foul stain of our sin. So God is to be God and uphold his righteous character to act justly in the universe. He can't just sweep our violation of the moral order under the rug, can he? Sin can't just be waved away. It must be dealt with squarely and head on. Because we know what happens to things that get swept under the rug or shoved into a closet somewhere, don't we? They have a horrible tendency of coming to light at the worst possible moment. And the gospel is not like that. The good news of Paul's gospel, as we saw in Romans 3, is that God has chosen to demonstrate his justice to the universe, not by destroying us, but by sending his one and only son to bear our sins and to die in our stead. The cross, therefore, is the supreme vindication of both the holiness and the love of God. The holy love of God manifests so clearly in the form of Jesus Christ dying for us. So the announcement of the gospel of God 2,000 years ago and also this afternoon is that anyone here, anyone without exception, who places their entire confidence, not in themselves, but in Christ Jesus alone, you have received advance notice of the verdict God will speak over you on the day of judgment. And that verdict, is, that verdict is, this man is righteous. This woman is righteous. That is the wonderful news of the gospel. And we call that justification. Justification is the once-for-all declaration that stands at the beginning of the Christian life. It's completely binary, off or on. You're either justified or you're not justified. Not partially, not incompletely. You are totally justified when God declares you righteous. And it is not earned by our moral strivings, our obedience to the law, our religious works. It's by faith. And why faith? Because faith is nothing but the empty hand that reaches out to receive God's gift. And this idea is not some theological novelty, not some invention of the Apostle Paul. If we had time to go through Romans 4, which unfortunately we don't have time to cover, Paul shows how Abraham, the father of the faithful, who stands at the head of not one, but three great world religions, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is a direct quote from Genesis 15, verse 6. The very first book of the Bible reveals the glorious truth that we're justified by faith. Abraham was justified by faith, not by circumcision. He wasn't even circumcised at this point. Not by the law of God. That wasn't revealed for 400 years. He was justified before God by his faith that God would provide somehow, and God did. And Paul concludes, this righteousness also will be counted to us who believe in him 
who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now we come to Romans 5. And all I've said so far is distilled by Paul in his opening words here, that opening phrase, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. In other words, I have just written four dense chapters establishing this one truth, this one sentence. We have been justified by faith. Now, let's see what marvelous things follow from that for you and I who believe in Christ. And the first mighty fact that follows from justification is that we have peace with God. Peace with God. And by the way, pay careful attention to the tenses. We have been justified by faith, and we have peace with God now. These are present, settled realities for all Christians. Not a reward reserved for heaven, not a special treat that only elderly saints receive. We have peace with God now. And we should should stop a moment, shouldn't we? And just enjoy this truth. Let it sink in. Imperfect, weak, and sinful as I am, God is not angry with me. He is no longer my enemy, but my ally. Whatever else may be going on, things are well between God and myself. Things are well between God and myself. And Paul emphasizes that this truth, this peace with God, is through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just go through Jesus at the beginning of our Christian life and then drop him once the introduction is made. Every moment of our life with God is through him and in him. He is the vine, we are the branches, and all of our life is in him. Through him and in him, as Paul emphasizes time and time time again in all his letters. My brief but brilliant acting career began and ended in fifth grade. I starred in the school play based on a book by Don Richardson called The Peace Trap. Has anyone heard of this book? Yeah, so good, a few of you. Um, Don and his wife were Canadian missionaries who were sent to western New Guinea in Indonesia. And they went to a tribe of cannibalistic headhunters called the Sawi. That wasn't his greatest challenge. The greatest obstacle to them receiving the gospel was that the highest and noblest virtue in the eyes of the Sawi was treachery and betrayal. And to them, there was no greater hero than a man who would carefully cultivate a friendship and build up trust with someone from another village and at the moment of greatest trust, stabbed this person and murdered him. And so there was constant warfare in the valley. And uh, he had extreme difficulty preaching the gospel. And when he was finally able to understand their language and share the story from the gospels, they cheered, not for Jesus, but for Judas. They thought Judas was the hero of the gospel. I don't think there's anything in seminary that prepares you for that kind of missionary situation. <laughs> So he was pulling his hair out, trying to figure out, how on earth am I going to communicate the gospel to people who think Judas is the hero and Jesus is the naive dupe? <laughs> his breakthrough came 
when he learned that there was, in fact, one way to make peace between warring tribes that was inviolable. Here's what would happen. One tribe would give the other one of their children. They would exchange children. And as long as these sacred peace children lived, neither tribe needed to fear treachery from the other. Now, once the tribes people grasped that Jesus was the peace child that God had sent to them, one valley after another came to Christ. And years later, I just saw a documentary. Years later, there's still like wonderful revival and spiritual life going on among the Sawi. Jesus is God's peace child. Come to live with us. And he's also our peace child dwelling with God. And as long as Christ Jesus lives, and he lives in the power of an indestructible life, we can dwell in security under the wings of our holy God. But we mustn't linger, because verse 2, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, Paul is not talking about access to God here, although that is true, but specifically access into this grace in which we stand. In other words, we have a permanent status of favor with God, to which Christ has earned us, and all access pass. No limitations. No restrictions. Full access to God. Because Christ himself has full access to God. And there are no limitations or restrictions placed on him. Access is a wonderful thing. As I learned myself over the last month. Out of the blue, I received a horrifying email from Amazon telling me they were shutting down my account. And this means a great deal to me because I don't just buy things on Amazon. My business is publishing ebooks on Amazon. And overnight, the 1,600 ebooks that I've spent the last five years of my life publishing vanished from Amazon. When I was done feeling utterly sick, I began banging on every door I could think of. It was obvious there was some kind of ludicrous administrative error, and it turned out later that I had fixed two spelling mistakes in one of my books that had set up this chain of events that destroyed my business nearly. <laughs> I knew there was some kind, there was, I hadn't done anything wrong, there was some kind of error on their end. But I couldn't find a single human being who would do anything about it. I'd just been filling out an online form 1,600 times. I didn't actually know anyone at Amazon. And when I called out the customer service line, guess what they did? They filled out forms for me as well. I was scouring LinkedIn and Twitter, trying to find the one person the one rational, decent person who would just give me 15 minutes of their time and fix this ludicrous problem. After 10 days and three separate foreign emails from Amazon telling me, we have reviewed the situation and we are proceeding with our decision to terminate your account. You didn't re review it, you little liars. I finally, connect, I finally connected with the senior support specialist who, would, who was willing to deviate from the script and two hours later, all 1,600 books are back online. Thanks to God, because this could have been the world's most expensive sermon illustration. <laughs> now, what nearly destroyed my business is that I lacked access. Amazon was this huge comp company, but it was utterly opaque to me. Not only did I not have a door, I didn't even have a window. And I can squeeze through a very small window. Now, the good news is, praise God, that in our most desperate situations, we will not find the door locked and bolted to us. 
the shutters over the windows down, closed for business. We stand permanently, continually, and irrevocably in the favor of God. Why? Because we belong to the Son of God's love and whom He is well pleased. That is through Christ. And through Christ, we also rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now this word rejoice occurs three times in our passage, but the NIV has the better translation, which is boast. We were just singing about that. And Paul, in earlier chapters, had excluded human boasting and works as being foolish and offensive. But now, he speaks of a boasting in faith that is that's appropriate and completely well-founded, utterly free from self-congratulation. And perhaps we can translate boasting as something like joyful confidence or jubilantly exulting. And this boasting in God is the truest and highest form of worship. And here, even the flaming seraphim fall silent and listen in silent wonder to the song of the redeemed. We boast, Paul says, in hope of the glory of God. See, there is something above and beyond justification, peace, and access that we enjoy now, and it's the glory of God. God's glory is the awesome and terrifying manifestation of his power and beauty. In the Old Testament, you'll find that this is often revealed as light or fire of such overwhelming intensity and brilliance that it must be hidden in clouds and deep darkness for human beings to survive. And God's purpose in creating humanity is for us men and women to gaze upon and shine with the glory of God. His fall, Adam, he forfeited this glory. And ever since, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Christ came to win this glory back for us and raise us to our true destiny. And after bearing our shame on the cross, Jesus has risen from the dead and he is now clothed with the glory of God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. The glory that Jesus possesses is something that the head is going to share with his entire body. And is it not amazing that in Romans, just a few chapters ago, we're talking about the wrath of God revealed against our sin. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know what little rats we can be sometimes, don't we? And yet somehow, here we are in Romans 5, and the word glory is being attached to us. Spiritual and physical glory. How magnificent is that? And we're going to talk more about glorification when we get to Romans 8 in a few weeks. But the point here in Romans 5 is that this glory is still future, and our posture toward it is hope. We need hope, not a mild wish for the future, or even a really passionate but uncertain desire, but what Hebrews calls a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. See, our anchor does not sink down to the depths, but that cable soars upward into heaven. The anchor of hope is Christ himself, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Everything that is true of the head now will be true of his body at his appearing. That is the Christian hope. And hope is what we need, because we live in this awkward time between the two comings of Christ, don't we? Yes, Christ has gained decisive victory, over the powers of evil on the cross, 
but we're still awaiting the restoration of all things. And as we look around at this world, and indeed at our own lives, it's painfully clear that the fulfillment of all God's promises still lies ahead of us, isn't it? And the word that characterizes this present tension is suffering. And the varieties of human affliction are almost limitless. Not many of us here will pass away quietly in our sleep after a lifetime of unbroken sunny days. Jesus himself foretold what? That through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Our own master's path to glory ran through suffering. And the disciple is not above his master. As Paul says in Romans 8, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. No cross, no crown, no groans, no glory. But there will be glory and there will be a crown. And that is what makes us rejoice, boast, gladly exult, even in the most painful suffering, that ultimately all will be well. And this is not an innocent, naive view of suffering. If anyone knew what suffering was, it's the Apostle Paul. And he endured horrifying things in his own mission, countless agonies that he could just dismiss with a wave and a light laugh. There were times, Paul says, when he despaired of life itself. But, but he also understood that in comparison with, and only in comparison with, the eternal weight of coming glory, our afflictions are light and momentary. Suffering, surprisingly, strengthens our hope in the glory of God. We might take the first blows poorly, but over time, over years perhaps, we begin to acquire the endurance and the tested character that is able to remain steadfast under trial. And suffering forces us to hope in God because we have nothing else left to hope in, do we? As Douglas Moo puts it, hope, like a muscle, will not be strong if it goes unused. And hey, for some of us, our earthly affairs have been going pretty well. We're coming along so nicely that our hope has grown rather weak and, and flabby. We haven't had to use it in some time. But when difficulties come, and they will come, we are forced to dig down deep into the promises of God. It's only when, we're, when we realize that here we have no lasting city that we begin to look forward to the one that is to come, whose builder and maker is God. But, are we just consoling ourselves with some religious pie in the sky? What assurance do we have that our hope is not ultimately going to be a delusion? That perhaps for this life only we have hoped in Christ, and therefore, are, of all men, are most to be pitied. Paul advances two great reasons. One, anchored in the ministry of the Spirit, and the other, in the ministry of the Son. The first reason, our hope will not put us to shame, Paul says in verse 5, is because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What we need most of all in suffering is not a long chain of rational arguments or even a collection of really good scripture verses. We need the Spirit to himself witnessing to our spirits that we are indeed the children of God and that we are loved by our Heavenly Father. 
There are many wonderful, awesome aspects of the ministry of the Spirit, but there's nothing so vital as Him providing this inward certainty in the midst of troubles. As Corey Ten Boom would often say after retirement at concentration camps, there is no pit so deep, but God's love is deeper still. And the unanimous witness of the suffering church through the centuries around the world has been this. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Let me share just one story. Harlan Popov was a Pentecostal pastor in Bulgaria who spent 13 years in prison being tortured by the communist secret police. He died in 1988 when he wrote a book called Tortured for His Faith. And here's what he wrote. Here in the DS prison, alone and with nothing, I had everything, Christ. Stripped of everything else without any worldly distractions, I enjoyed a deep and beautiful communion with God. Joy and peace flooded my soul. My body ached with starvation, but my spirit has never been closer to God. Lying starved, alone, and too weak to move, I felt I could reach out to God and be taken into his arms. God's presence surrounded me and strengthened me. It filled me. I will never forget those ten days of solitary confinement. Early on the morning of the tenth day, I looked out of my cell window toward the factory across the street. To my astonishment, I saw the clear form of a cross on the rooftop of the factory. I think probably the shadow of two big chimneys was formed by the sun lighting the chimneys in such a way as to cause a cross. But to me, it was a sign from God. I stood at the cell window a long time, looking at the cross and thinking of the cross on which Jesus died and of his love and goodness. Suddenly, a voice as real as any I have ever heard said, My son, this is your cross, which you must bear. Prepare yourself for more suffering. Though I knew something terrible was about to happen, the sign of that cross gave me a feeling of confidence in God, and looking through the bars on the cell window, I started singing a favorite hymn. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way, from the burning of the noontide, heat, and the burden of the day. With tears running down my cheeks, I sang on. I take, O cross, thy shadow from my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face, content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory all across. I sang this song to the end. He writes, My heart was filled with sweetness. Tears poured down my face. They were not bitter tears, but as we Christians in Bulgaria say, sweet tears. As I finished the song, the door opened and I was led downstairs for another period of torture. Now what's striking about Popov's story for us today is that the Spirit's revelation of divine love in his soul, this pouring out of the love of God, was a revelation of God's love in Christ on the cross. See, the Holy Spirit is not off on his own independent mission. He was sent by the Father to make sure that nothing Jesus did for us would go to waste, that we would actually enjoy and participate in all that Christ is and all that he has won for us. 
So here in verse 5, we see God showing his love through the Spirit. But if you glance down to verse 8, we read, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's a double expression of the Father's love. First, he gave his Son to die for us. And then he gave his Spirit to live in us. And I cannot think of any stronger guarantee than the gift of not one, but two divine persons. Not a saint, not an angel, not the mother of God, the Son and the Spirit. And if we possess the Son, and if we possess the Spirit, then, brothers and sisters, we can be certain that we possess the Father also. All three members of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are working in concerts that you and I might know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Oh, that's good stuff. Now, this last half of our text. Paul describes our state when Christ died for us as ungodly, weak sinners and enemies. And I think he's underlining this, not to make us miserable, but so that we glory in nothing else but the love of God in Christ for us. And far from depressing us, the contemplation of our complete unworthiness is meant to liberate us from this misguided trust in our good works that we're so often tempted to, so that we can rejoice instead in the amazing grace of our God. Self-sacrifice is a rare thing in our world. Even, to, even just to risk your life for someone is enough to get you branded as a hero, isn't it? It's almost unheard of for someone to knowingly embrace certain death for a friend. The most striking examples, I guess, are in wartime, right? You hear these stories of somebody's in a foxhole and the grenade comes and one soldier leaps onto the grenade and allows himself to be blown up to save his friends. But what has never happened in human history is this, a soldier throwing himself on a grenade to save the enemy. That is what God has done for us in Christ. And the love and grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus have no parallels in human history. Christ didn't wait for us to be at our best. He would be waiting still. He came at just the right time when we were at our worst. So here's Paul's logic in verses 9 and 10. If God expressed his love for us, even when we were in that awful condition, will he possibly forsake us now? Since he has already done the greater and more difficult thing, he's not going to shrink back from the comparatively lesser and easier task of bringing us safely home. If Christ has dived down, down, down into the cold waters of death and pulled our gray corpses to the surface and breathed resurrection life into our nostrils, will he abandon us naked and shivering on the shore? And Paul would say, God forbid. It's inconceivable. God will complete the good work that he has begun in us. He will never let it be said that he could not or would not keep his covenant towards his chosen people. Notice the future orientation. We're still talking about hope. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God in verse 9. And much more shall we be saved by his life in, the, in verse 10. Paul is still thinking about the grounds of hope because full salvation still lies ahead of us. If someone asks you, have you been saved? 
You should say yes and no, or yes and not yet, because the final chapter of our salvation has still to be written. And what we must still face is the revelation of the wrath of God on the last day. How will we stand before the judgment seat of God? Paul's confidence is in something even greater than the death of Christ. And that is the life of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is not rotting in an unmarked Palestinian tomb. He has been declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His voice like the roar of many waters. He holds the stars in his hands. And his face is like the sun shining at full strength. This exalted God-man stands as our priest before God by the power of an indestructible life. And it's his continual, unceasing intercession that ensures that all things actually will work out to the good of those who love God. The great lesson of our text is that Christ is our salvation from first to last. Christ is our justification. Christ is our reconciliation. Christ is our peace. Christ is our access. Christ is our hope. Christ is the Alpha and Omega, Omega, the A to Z of the Gospel, for every spiritual blessing, without exception, is in Him. So the great question for us this morning is, am I in Christ? If if you're not, however well your life may seem to be going now, you are facing a terrifying future, utterly alone, with nothing to bring before God on the Day of Judgment but feeble excuses. For you, there's no peace, no access, and no hope. But the promise of the gospel is that if you reach out your hand and accept Christ in faith, like everyone else here has done, not as a righteous person, but as a poor sinner, that these glorious things will be just as true for you as they are for us. And if we do belong to Christ, if we are in him, then no matter how badly our lives are going now, We face a glorious future. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. We have mighty, mighty, mighty privileges in the gospel. And our hope will not put us to shame. For we have built our house on the rock. In this life we groan and we grieve. But we don't grieve as those without hope. For Christ has risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love revealed in the gospel and the gift of your Son when we were ungodly enemies, dead in our trespasses and sins. And we thank you for the gift of your Son and for the gift of your Spirit, O Lord, and we ask that he would afresh pour out your love into our hearts and give us a deeper and truer revelation of your love for us in Christ. Lord, there are many here who are suffering, perhaps in secret ways, And we ask for the consolation of your spirit in our hearts. Reveal to us all just a glimmer of the glory that is to come. To sustain us through the dark days that lie ahead. Thank you, God. You are good. We love and trust you as our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we live.
This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.